The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, he's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you? Very fine, Tom, thank you. Yourself? Doing well. Great to be here, Good Father. Good to see you. Uh, Father, we have, of course, a lot of great emails tonight from our inbox, so uh, just jumping right in, uh, we had a viewer write in and say, I'm curious to see if Father has already talked about the solution to the church being infiltrated by modernists. Does it mean that infiltration has to be done by traditionalists to take back the seminaries and the high positions of the Vatican? Defeating the Novus Ordo is ultimately the objective, so I'd love to hear Father Jenkins' thoughts about that. Well, I would question whether defeating the Novus Ordo is ultimately the objective, I think. Uh, although, I mean, I understand the point that is being made there. Uh, of course, we always have to say that fidelity to our Lord Jesus Christ is really the ultimate objective, right? Faith, hope, and charity. And it's exactly faith, hope, and charity that prevents us from doing what the modernists have done. You know, we, we can't resort to the same methods that they use. Uh, why? Because, as St. Pius the Tenth said of them, I mean, they're, they're characterized by audacity, pride, right? And um, dis deceitfulness too, right? They're very deceptive. Um, they don't even, they're so deceptive, they don't even consider it deceit in the sense that they can contradict themselves and, and not think that uh, in, either, in either case, uh, what, whether they say A or uh, deny A, you know, they affirm A and deny A, they don't, they don't see that one must be false and therefore a lie. They, they, they say what needs to be said to serve the purpose. Uh, St. Pius X's encyclical, uh, Pascendi, Dominici Regis, on modernism, makes that eminently clear that the modernist speaks differently depending on whether he's speaking as a philosopher, as a theologian, as a believer, as a uh, text-critical historian or whatever, um, that they're all different, quote-unquote, truths uh, in all those different spheres, and they can contradict each other. For a Catholic, that's impossible. Uh, we have to just simply tell the truth. We can't dissemble. We can't pretend to be modernists for the sake of trying to gain preferment and uh, somehow infiltrate uh, the, the Novus Ordo. It's impossible. Uh, any more than we could infiltrate the Communist Party by pretending to be communists, affirming communism, proving ourselves to be good communists, you know? I mean, you know, every now and then you see these... Uh, or hear about these programs where we have law enforcement, you have undercover agents who are trying to infiltrate uh, bicycle gangs and, and, and uh, other, other groups like that. And... Uh, 
you know, obviously there are moral moral principles that have to govern them. There are things they cannot do. They are deceptive. They dissimulate, but they can't uh, actually prove themselves worthy of being considered members of the gang by actually killing killing someone, right? Uh, well, for us, I mean, it's a matter of violating the commandments, not just taking an innocent person's life. Uh, we just can't do certain things that are just morally wrong um, that modernists have no problem with. For example, I mean, look at Francis himself. I mean, he's the quintessential modernist. He's the ultimate modernist man. And, um, you know, look at the things that he is justifying or the evil of which he's minimizing. Now, which of us could ever uh, dissimulate so gravely that we could echo what he says, appear to agree with it, promote it for the sake of being promoted within the Novus Ordo? Um, it's just impossible for a Catholic to do that. No, we can't infiltrate the, the Novus Ordo uh, by trying, by being or appearing to be Novus Ordo. We'd have to be very much involved in sacrilege and blasphemy in order to do that. In conscience, we can't. What is the solution then? How do we defeat the Novus Ordo? God, God himself, by grace, has to overcome it. God has to defeat modernism. Um, in fact, there's a, uh, a website by that title, Defeat Modernism, and uh, we know the gentleman who, is in, uh, who conducts that. He's a very fine Catholic gentleman and uh, has some excellent information on that website. Absolutely. But in order to defeat modernism, um, the, there's only one, one um, power that can defeat modernism. Uh, that is the power of God through the faith and through the true Catholic Church. Um, that is the traditional Catholic Church. Okay, that's what I mean by the true Catholic Church, not this modernist uh, construct of, of no, the Novus Ordo, the New Order. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that will, uh, by the grace of God, defeat the big lie, and that is modernism. Okay. Well, Father, we had uh, a practical question about uh, traditional Catholics, the traditional Catholic religion. Um, from a viewer who says that, Father, he is edified by the program. Often it seems traditional Catholicism is defined in the larger world mostly by adherence to the traditional Latin Mass. It seems this may be one distinction, but I would like to think there are many other distinctions as well. I would like to know not simply theological or philosophical distinctions, but more practical differences. For example, in the areas of religious orders, fasting, work habits, practices, daily life, etc. God bless you, Father Jenkins, for your service to the Church. Well, thank you, and uh, God bless you for writing. I appreciate the encouragement and the prayers, certainly. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to respond to the question, though, and uh, you know that's a, a lot, a lot yes. that he mentions there, and I, I don't know if we can go down the list and explain each and every one of those things. But if you could sum that up, Tom, how would you how would you sum that up? And uh, what does it what does it mean practically speaking to be a traditional Catholic? What what is the daily life of a traditional? Well, Catholic? as I see, uh, the uh, the writer asks if adherence to the traditional Latin Mass is uh, the traditional Roman rite of Mass is that the essence or even the sum and substance of being traditional. And as he points out, it's not. It's, it's a major part of being traditional Catholic. But uh, if we we're going to try to uh, state it in a matter of principle, what it is to be traditional Catholic, something that I've done before in the program, but it's been a while long, 
I'd have to say that um, being a traditional Catholic, of course, starts off by believing all the traditional doctrines of the Catholic faith. You'll find those in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, right? They're expressed in the Roman Catechism. You have to believe everything that is there. And uh, all of the uh, infallible uh, pronouncements of the solemn magisterium of the Catholic Church, the ordinary and extraordinary magisterium of the Catholic Church throughout the centuries. Um, so that is the baseline for what it is to be a traditional Catholic. But then there's also the practice of the Catholic faith. Belief is one thing, and then putting that belief into practice. So what is a a traditional Catholic in practice do? And I think that's more like uh, uh, the, the question here. And um, basically, uh, I think we can boil it down to about three principles. The first principle being that uh, a traditional Catholic will do, will do always and everywhere uh, the very things that the, the Catholic Church has traditionally, that is, has always and everywhere commanded that the faith will do in order to be faithful Catholics. <clears throat> so if we go back to the history of the Church, we find that the Church has pronounced very clearly through the years what a Catholic must do to be Catholic. And uh, these are things that traditional Catholics take absolutely seriously and say, okay, this is what the Church has always said is necessary to be done for one to be a traditional Catholic, and those I will always do. But there's more to it, and be, there is the second principle, and that is a traditional Catholic will never do what the Church has always and everywhere condemned as contrary to the, uh, the Catholic faith, contrary to Catholic practice, such that uh, it is antithetical to being a Catholic. Okay? There are certain things that are absolutely wrong, always wrong, uh, gravely wrong, the Church has said are absolutely um, uh, condemned by the Catholic Church as being immoral, contrary to, contrary to faith and morals. Okay, And so a traditional Catholic uh, will study what those are and know what those are and say, okay, there are certain things I know that I cannot do. Absolutely, I will never do these things. <clears throat> the Church has said these, these beha this behavior is never compatible with being a Catholic. For example, uh, worshiping at non-Catholic worship services. The Church has always and absolutely condemned anything like that, taking active part in any non-Catholic worship service. Or, let, let's say, with the Turk bishops, for example, consecrating non-Catholics as bishops. The Church has always and everywhere condemned this as being antithetical to being traditional Catholic. <clears throat> um, but there's a third principle, too, Tom, because there are things that the Church hasn't said must always and everywhere be done to be Catholic, and other things that must always and everywhere never be done, okay, to be Catholic. There are certain things which the Church says in missionary circumstances or in times of persecution can be done and actually should be done, which in other circumstances would not be done. Um, and we notice, for example, uh, um, you know, in... in in um, prisoner of war camps, um, priests who are prisoners might, by some act of providence, come into possession of a little bit of, of wine and some wheat bread, and they offer mass, and uh, perhaps even are able to give communion to other prisoners, Catholic prisoners there in the, in the prisoner of war camps. 
And uh, there are stories, heroic stories, from the prisoner of war camps conducted by the Soviets and by the Nazis of uh, priests who were able to offer Mass under this unusual circumstances, circumstances which ordinarily would be absolutely forbidden. I mean, no vestments, right? Uh, no missile, no candles, uh, no altar cloths, uh, maybe, maybe using a, a rag uh, as clean as they can get it uh, uh, for a corporal, um, using a little, little tin cup maybe as a, as a chalice. These things would ordinarily be absolutely forbidden. But under the circumstances prevailing there, the church has said, not only was this the right thing to do, this was the heroic Catholic thing to do. So there is a third category of things, and those are the things that the church says that a time of crisis can and indeed should be done, okay, for the sake of the faith, for the sake of the faithful. Uh, it reminds us that the code of canon law of the church has... Uh, a statement that the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. But that is why the church exists. It reminds us that while the church has the power of magisterium, which generally is uh, uh, attributed to the, uh, the teaching authority and the ruling authority of the church, um, the church also has the power of ministerium, to minister, minister the sacraments. This is the power of actually sanctifying souls by the power of Christ our Lord working through the sacraments. And uh, the church has traditionally uh, given great power, uh, not, I should say, well, the powers of the ministerium are given by Christ, of course, but in terms of exercising that power, the church has always said that that power is at the service of the sanctification of souls, the justification from sin, the sanctification by, of course, sanctifying grace. And so the church, even in her written law, has said that, has, has even said explicitly that a priest who is excommunicated from the church can exercise the power of forgiving sins in cases of grave necessity. Um, and um, there are other laws of the church, actually, which uh, do give a certain latitude, you know, in, in times of confusion and times of necessity for priests to exercise the power of ministry of the sacraments. Um, of course, there are hard, fast laws that, that, that no, no priest can, can uh, without guilt, uh, violate. But usually when it comes to the matter of jurisdiction, uh, to the matter of faculties given by the church, the church recognizes that if there is a soul in need, that the priest has to have the necessary authorization to proceed. And what that means is the church is willing to give that authorization, even in times that she doesn't necessarily foresee, according to her common law. And this is an expression of the traditional mind of the church. In fact, if you want to go back to see how the church judged things, you have to go back in her history. And you see the things that has ha have happened um, to the Catholic faithful, to the Catholic clergy, and how they've dealt with these situations, and how the church subsequent subsequently judged those matters. And there you find the church herself, and in the judgment of the church, her tradition. And that's what a, Catholic, a traditional Catholic will do. 
he will, um, well, I mean, look, in civil law, we have precedent, right? Mm -hmm. And this is how cases are argued in civil law, by precedent. And uh, in the church, precedent is sacred tradition. It is not just human, it is divine. How the church actually judged these things and judged the behavior, the actions taken of the faithful. Uh, in all these different circumstances of history, that is what God has given us as sacred tradition, and this is the sure guide that we need to follow right now. Okay. To do what the church has always required, to never do what the church has always condemned, and to see what the church has said should be done in times of crisis for the good of souls. That's great. I don't know if that actually answers the question, but uh, hopefully uh, our writer will follow up with something uh, Maybe a more specific sure, yes. question. Yes, well, <laughs> while we are on that topic of the, uh, the no sort of versus uh, traditional Catholicism, Father, we had an interesting email uh, that I would love to get your opinion on. It's from a viewer who asks, why are modern churches so ugly? Uh, they say that I noticed, uh, this is from Belgium, by the way, if you're in Belgium, they say that I noticed that Catholic churches started changing in the 1950s with the altar being in the center of the church. Uh, they say, would you have any idea where the original theological idea of traditional Catholic beauty originates? Because the Novus Ordo does not seem to be able to reproduce it. Uh, so thank you for your response, Father, and much prayers for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Prayers are extremely important, obviously. And I'd like all of our writers to know that we pray for them too, right? All of our viewers, we and uh, actually, there's a mass offered every week, every month for yes. uh, the viewers and supporters of what Catholics believe. Yes. So um, let me ask you this. Uh, yes. This writer said the altar is placed in the middle of the church. Is that what he said? Mm -hmm. Not the table, it's but altar. the altar. Okay, well, that's, uh, see, that's the part of the problem. They've done away with the altar. They, they, they've replaced the altar with an actual, just a table. Yeah. Uh, because the, the new mass is a um, memorial meal. It is a memorial meal, meal uh, meant to just kind of commemorate something that Jesus did long ago and far away, and that is offer the sacrifice on Calvary. But the new Mass does never actually claim to be the sacrifice of Calvary. It just claims to mem remember the sacrifice of Calvary, like any Protestant service. Um, <clears throat> even when it recounts uh, the, the, account, the account of our Lord dying on the cross, um, when it recounts the words of our Lord uh, at the Last Supper, it tells it more as a story. It's a narrative, as it's called, uh, rather than actually making the sacrifice of Christ present on the altar. Uh, and that's very clear from the, the changes made to the prayers of the new Mass, where they um, take away the idea that the Mass itself, the liturgy they're celebrating there, is actually expiatory for sin. Okay, we know that the sacrifice, that all sacrifice, is offered in uh, adoration and reparation and thanksgiving and supplication to God. Okay, and we can offer prayers of adoration to God and praising Him, and we can offer prayers of thanksgiving to God. We can offer prayers of supplication to God. So we can offer sacrifices in praise of God and thanksgiving to God and supplication to God. But after we sinned, there was only one who had the dignity to actually make the prayer the and the sacrifice of reparation. And that was 
uh, and remains our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God made man. He alone could offer, he alone could be the sacrifice suitable, adequate for the reparation of the sins of mankind. And so this is the very essence of the Mass, that it is the sacrifice of Calvary. And by, let's say, a Bible service or a communion service or whatever they might have in the Protestant churches, they can, uh, they can offer prayers and, and so on in praise of God and thanksgiving to God and supplication to God. But the only actual sacrifice that is reparatory to God the Father in heaven is the sacrifice of his divine Son on Calvary, perpetuated through the Mass. Um, so they've done away with the, the altar which, on, on which the sacrifice would be, would be offered. They've replaced it with a table, a mere table. And I think that helps to explain why everything else followed suit. Once you destroy the altar, once you mothball the altar, once you replace the altar with a mere table, uh, then everything else, you know, disorder, disorder sets in. Beauty is a matter of order. Uh, beauty, beauty is where everything is ordered perfectly, okay? And where you have disorder is where you have ugliness come in. And uh, with modernism, you have a grave disorder of the mind. You have such a, a grave disorder of the intelligence that is basically turned on itself and wants to tear itself to pieces. Okay, it uh, Papias X actually begins Pashendi by talking about the grave philosophical errors that are at the very root of uh, modernism, and he he talks about agnosticism. He talks about phenomenalism. Uh, he talks about these grave philosophical errors, um, which which are uh, uh, just a terrible disorder in the in the intelligence. And when you have such a disorder set in the very human mind, the very first thing in us that makes us in the image of God. Uh, an idea of the mind rejecting the idea of truth, divine truth by revelation, even knowing the truth of this world uh, by phenomenalism, phenomenology. Uh, when you so completely destroy the nature of the intellect, <clears throat> that you cut it off from, from reality and from truth, of course everything else is going to follow. That disorder is going to, going to reverberate throughout the entire you know, being of every human. On the face. When, you, when, you get that, uh, when, you, when you do that to the intellect, the will is disordered, all the passions, of course, completely thrown into disorder because they're no longer regulated by the intelligence and the will. And um, that is going to resonate throughout the entire creation. Um, it's, it's perceptive of this gentleman, though, or lady, to point out, though, that the Novus Ordo has a kind of cult of ugliness. And um, all one has to do, actually, is go to Rome, go to the Vatican, go to St. Peter's, right? Go through those doors that um, <clears throat> will take you in and out of St. Peter's Basilica and take a good look at those, those bronze doors of John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth. They're absolutely hideous. The stuff that nightmares are made of. You take a look at those things. In fact, <clears throat> there are areas of the doors we understand that there were things that were ground off of them because they were clearly Masonic insignia when they were first mounted there. And, but even, even having been doctored, the images on those doors are absolutely hideous. They, they look like scenes from hell. They're supposed to be scenes of saints, but they're, they're not.
And um, I mean, go in and take a look at the, anything that Paul VI did is absolutely ugliness in you know it's 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 ugliness in stone, it's ugliness in metal, ugliness in in, in, in glass. Everything he did is twisted and distorted. And that's a manifestation of a, a twisted and distorted mind. <clears throat> it used to be, and I don't know if it still is, but when one went through the Sistine Chapel, well, you have to go through the Vatican Museums in order to get to the Sistine Chapel where you're allowed for maybe 10 minutes to <clears throat> be awestruck by the work of Michelangelo. But then you're ushered out and you come through at least former, in former times, to some rooms which contained artwork of Paul VI. And it really is like a tour of hell. It, I mean, one hideous, twisted, distorted, contorted thing after another. Human forms, just twisted and contorted. Um, it's, it's hard to describe. You know, you'd have to see it to believe it. But uh, this is what Paul VI considered art. This is what rejoiced his twisted heart and soul and mind. Um, but it is emblematic of modernism and a real, a real grave disorder. So uh, whenever you see ugliness, you see something that is disordered. And you can understand it um, in its root when you see the mind, the disordered mind that created it. Um, you know, it, would, it also comes to mind that some of the most magnificent religious art was even painted and sculpted by souls that were not necessarily very virtuous, okay? But nonetheless, they had a sense of beauty. Uh, but modernism destroys even that. There's no, no even vestige of beauty in the mind to appreciate what is beautiful. And even when it does... Uh, even when it does fashion on something beautiful, it attaches to it something disordered. It, it, it sees something twisted in it, or reads into it something twisted. Like the commentators, you might have uh, modernists who comment on beautiful things, you know. They, they focus on twisted and demented and deranged things. So um, I guess, uh, you know, everything I say, it all comes down to the word order and disorder. And um, yes, the Novus Ordo, uh, based upon modernist um, mendacity, and I'd have to say um, just uh, mental illness, of <laughs> uh, uh, actually that that is going to, manifest itself in ugliness. Wow. And I know, Father, that uh, many of our viewers, at least, will often refer to the, uh, the Novus Ordo, the New Order, as the Disorder. No. Um, so that seems to be perfectly in line with what you're mm -hmm. saying. But yeah. I'm sure there's... Some call it the Nervous Order. They have various <laughs> names for it. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's almost as though beauty makes them nervous. If they say things that are, that are ordered, it's as though they... Almost like a devil. You know, devils want to get into the soul that is ordered and start disordering them. Remember that passage in, a, in the gospel where our Lord talks about the unclean spirit going out of the man, wandering, looking for some other habitation, and when it doesn't find one, it goes back to the original person who, uh, from which it was sent out or exercised or whatever, 
and uh, finds that the place is swept, cleaned up, and decorated, garnished is the word that, that is used, but it's not locked. And so he has a way to get in again, and that's, a, that's the tragedy. That soul is cleaned up and decorated with virtues, but it is still not um, secure, uh, secured against the influence of, of the devil. For whatever reason, it, 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 it doesn't take the precautions necessary. Um, and it once again allows itself to fall under that influence. And uh, our Lord says that the original evil, unclean spirit moves in with seven spirits worse than himself. And the last condition of that soul is worse than, than it was at the beginning. But when, the, we, when our Lord describes it as being swept, cleaned, and garnished, decorated, you get a sense of order, that there's beauty in it. And this is exactly what the devil's love, that if the devil can enjoy anything, it is destroying that order in the soul. Um, and so you, you see that same mania or disorder in modernists. Well, I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said on that, Father, but I wanted to try and uh, keep going through some emails. So moving right along to a new topic, uh, we had a viewer who wrote in and asked if doing things like uh, the laundry, is that considered servile work? Uh, she asked uh, specifically for homemakers, is there a list that uh, identifies what they can and cannot do on a Sunday? Something that would qualify as servile work. How do you determine that? Well, generally one can ask oneself, well, is this the work that a slave or a servant would do in the old days, okay? And uh, if the answer is, well, yeah, um, laundry work, uh, the scullery made, the kitchen, all that kind of thing. Yeah, servants would have done things like that in the old days. Um, with regard to laundry, yeah, one should avoid doing that on Sunday. It is considered servile work. It's not considered necessarily heavy servile work. And uh, one can see that it might even be often necessary. I mean, if, if people need clean clothes for Monday, and the only time to clean them and press them and all the rest is Sunday, well, one would say, okay, the ox fell under the pit, and it's necessary for me to do this work. Um, the, the general principle is uh, that even servile work can be done morally on Sunday or a holy day of obligation, which has the same obligation as Sunday, um, if it is work that must be done and cannot reasonably be done at any other time. Uh, we've talked about that before. So uh, for, we talk about cooking uh, meals, serving meals, cleaning the dishes, and so on. I mean, these. this is all, technically speaking, servile work. This is work that a servant would do, let's say, in a family that could have servants. Um, but um, but this is where work that should, has to be done. That's why you can go to a restaurant on Sunday, even though somebody has to, um, you know, cook the food, serve the food, clean up after you. Um, it's simply a necessity of life that we eat, and that we eat well-prepared food, cooked food, and so on. Um, and so since it has to be done, it has to be done by somebody, that um, 
it is perfectly legitimate to go to a restaurant and to, you know, um, have someone cook the food for you, serve it, and clean up after you. Uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, in some ways, one might say, uh, it actually minimizes the overall amount of work because there are, for every family that goes to a restaurant, there's probably a mother who, or a, a wife who doesn't have to, uh, to do all that. You know, at least for that one meal. So, um, but that's why it's legitimate to, to work in the food industry on Sunday, too. Although, again, you know, I'd, I'd recommend to our young people, avoid that, absolutely. Let them know, if you're going to employ you, let them know you don't work on Sunday. Because you want to sanctify the day as well as you can yourself. And uh, I want to make, set that ironclad rule down that you're not working on Sunday, so they just have to either hire you or not, but if they hire you, it's with the understanding they're not going to uh, violate that, uh, that word. That uh, word they gave you, they won't. They won't be expecting you to work on that day. Um, so, if you apply that principle, that it's work that has to be done and cannot be done at any other time. I mean, that those situations can come up from time to time. Uh, you know, the, you need the vehicle. The vehicle broke down, had a flat tire, whatever it is. Uh, I need this vehicle to be operational tomorrow. I've got to do this work, right? Uh, one has to be very careful about that, though, because um, if you've told your children for years, you know, no survival work on Sunday, we're, we're a Catholic family, we observe this, we honor the Lord's Day, and then you're going to be doing survival work on Sunday, you've got to make sure your kids understand that there are legitimate reasons for it, and, uh, you know, you're not being a hypocrite, or you're not taking what you told them and saying, well, that doesn't count anymore. Don't, don't listen to me anymore. <laughs> what I said isn't, isn't true. So there has to be some effort made to try to enable them to understand, according to their capacity, um, what the rule is and how it works, right? And why you're not doing something bad. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, with regard to the laundry, for example, uh, it's not considered heavy work. It's not something that may take, you know, three hours. It's just sporadic work throughout the day. It wouldn't be a mortal sin. And if it's necessary, it wouldn't even be a venial sin at all. It wouldn't even be a fault. If you're tending to your obligations as a wife and a mother, for example, to clothe your family, um, and there is a real necessity there that this be done on a Sunday, then, you know, that's, that's your priority. The priority is to take the God-given obligation you have as a mother to feed, clothe, and shelter your family. So, you know, just like the obligation to attend Mass on Sunday can give way to caring for a sick child at home, right? That's a prior obligation to God, to the same God who commands that we attend Mass on Sunday. Um, so um, it's considering which is the prior obligation, which is the higher obligation, <clears throat> Uh, which, in the, as it were, in the mind of God, takes precedence, right? And doing that. Um, so, in any case, um, as far as getting a list of things together, well, you know, uh, was that written by... I don't know if that's written by a man or a woman, but I would say this. If it's a woman and it's a mother, writing down all the things... <laughs> you know, when, when you think about what a mother does, all the things she does, I mean... If a, if a mother were to start out documenting one day in her life of all the things she did, that would be a long list, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, talk to your noble wife about that, right? Yes. <laughs> um, 
So, um, yeah, I, I suppose we can get a list together, but it would it would include virtually everything you do during the day, you know. <laughs> um, and the point is that you try to get as much of it done during the other days and have as much of it completed so you can enjoy truly a day of rest on Sunday, right? As much as humanly possible. Uh, but for a mother, and sometimes for a dad, depending on what comes out, right? Um, they will always have to be aware of uh, prior obligations, ultimately obligations to God, to be fathers and mothers, to be husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. And uh, be ready to take care of those matters as quickly and efficiently as they can, but sometimes they have to be done. Okay, well, Father, just one more topic that we wanted to get to tonight. If we could just spend a couple of minutes on this in closing. Um, we had uh, two different emails on this same topic. Um, essentially, the, the first one asked, Father, how should, uh, how should Catholic priests treat and provide for those who have same-sex attraction? Well, treat them as anyone else. They would treat them as they would anyone else, essentially. I mean, with charity and uh, you know, love for their souls and uh, thought for their for their salvation. I mean, obviously, you can't um, ignore the fact that they have an attraction which is uh, disordered and contradictorum against nature and puts them in a certain amount of danger, right? So, just as you would, you would um, admonish anyone who had some disordered inclination, and let's face it, I mean, everyone has disordered inclinations. It's called the fomus peccati. It's original sin, uh, which even after the original sin, the guilt of original sin is remo removed from the soul, the consequences or effects of original sin remain in every single soul. The only uh, human being ever born... Um, Without that was the Blessed Mother herself. Um, but her, gran her parents and her grandparents and everybody afterwards, we've all come into the world with that. And we all have to deal with those disordered inclinations. Well, this is one disordered inclination. Uh, and it's, it's a very grave danger uh, to a person to have that because they have to be particularly on their guard against certain temptations that men most others don't have. And uh, why, why this is so of certain people, well, there are, there are those who claim that it's because of some experience that they were taken advantage of and kind of imprinted with this when they were little. Others say, no, it's a matter of nature, right? Not nurture, it's a matter of nature that, uh, that something somewhere predisposes them in this way. But nonetheless, I mean, you'd have to have a certain care for them out of charity to admonish them and tell them, you know, this is a very grave danger for you, and you have to be very resolute about this. And uh, they might say, well, you know, this kind of singles me out. You'd say, well, in a way it does, but in a, in a very important way it really doesn't, because I'd be giving the same advice to somebody who doesn't have that attraction, but they might be attracted to members of the opposite gender, but I'd still have to be telling them you can't be lusting after these other people. Uh, the difference comes with, with you is that you can't marry somebody like that. You know, marriage is for a man and a woman. This is the traditional Catholic teaching. This is what the Catholic Church teaches. And if you want to be a Catholic, traditional Catholic, you have to accept that. You have to believe that, that your very life, soul's salvation depends on being faithful to that. 
the church has been absolutely adamantly clear about that, always and everywhere. And, uh, you know, there are no exceptions. It's what nature is. It's the nature that God gave us and nature as God created it. Uh, that marriage is a life-giving institution, that the genders, male and female, were created by God for the sake of giving life. And uh, anything that would uh, bring into uh, practice, you know, the, the use of those reproductive powers and all the that goes with it, that would... Uh, you know, be right from you know, the beginning, contrary to giving life, absolutely is absolutely wrong. It's a perversion. It's a perversion, is what it is. Um, and so, those even without same gender attractions can be very guilty of perversions because they deviate from that very uh, first, the primary essential purpose of them, which is giving life. Um, now, I mean, if they, um, if they take action for the sake of uh, preventing life, that would be a form of contraception, and that would, again, would be a perversion of the act, right? But certainly, uh, the same genders in, in engaging, you know, in the, uh, um, in, in the sexual acts is a, is a perversion. It's, it's against nature, contra naturam, as it's said in Latin. And uh, it is mortally sinful. Okay. And you just have to admonish them that they have a particular weakness in this regard. Others might have a particular weakness toward you know, any number of other grave sins, right? Um, but this particular sin is a sin against nature and has a particularly grave character. As a matter of fact, uh, it's one of the four sins that cries to heaven for vengeance, as we saw with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so, you know, again, out of charity, one would have to admonish somebody who, um, had that tendency to make it very clear that their soul's salvation depends upon them, uh, absolutely resisting and fighting that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you could also have to tell them that, um, successfully doing that out of a love for God and to be faithful to God can make a very great saint out of you. And uh, we, we may well find in heaven souls who are in this world who dealt with that and dealt with it so faithfully that they were continually glorifying God by resisting that, that tendency, uh, purely and simply out of love for God, that they would not surrender to it, they would not submit to it, they would not allow this to take control of them. And uh, they may have a very, very high place in heaven now because God was obviously asking them to be faithful um, in circumstances that required, well, a great deal of faith, hope, and charity uh, that they really deny themselves every day, take up their cross and follow him. And there may well be any number of souls who did just that. Um, so, um, you know, you'd encourage them to... Uh, accept that as a cross and to carry it faithfully after Christ and uh, uh, they'd be very blessed by God and uh, rewarded not only in this world but in heaven too. Absolutely. Uh, well, on a somewhat related note, Father, the last last email for tonight, uh, this viewer 
asks, uh, would a Christian athlete be burning incense to the LGBTQ idol if they play for a professional sports team and the sports team presents their players with a rainbow number on their jersey to wear during the the uh, Pride month of June? Uh, she says, furthermore, what about companies which bend the knee to the LGBTQ idol? What if you hold a position in a company that pushes this? Is this what is meant by not being able to buy, sell, or trade without the mark of the beast? Well, if you're on a sports team, a member of a sports team, uh, and you're asked to wear the emblem of the uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, um, cause, um, you can't do that. You, you simply would have to refuse. I don't know that they could require you to do that. Um, I, I guess it depends on the term of the contract, right? Of course, nowadays, I mean, they'll do whatever they please, right? And uh, they think they'll be backed up by any court uh, in the land that uh, um, no one would dare uh, cross uh, the LGBTQ, uh, what do you call it, gang, mafia, whatever it is, right? Um, the... Um, the matter of working for such a company, though, I mean, could, could one be an executive in a company that is promoting that? Well, um, you know, the, the, the company like that might require you to undergo training, right? Woke training and, and uh, acceptance training. Um, so to submit to things like that, one could, uh, as long as one was strong enough not to be influenced by it and uh, not to compromise the faith and morals by it. But um, the moment might come when one is asked to declare himself, public, you know, in private or public, saying, what do you stand for? This is what the company stands for. Um, your job is now on the line. You have to declare yourself. And in a case like that, the person would have to say, I reject that, absolutely, and I will not. I will not, in public or in private, I will not um, promote this cause. I will not identify with this cause. In fact, uh, I will speak very, very firmly and uh, tell people of my rejection of this cause as being grossly immoral, totally contrary to my faith. Um, and let the chips fall where they may. Take, us, take the stand, you know. Um, they may say, well, I can't afford to lose that job. I'd say, well, go find another job in the meantime. Then, okay, you know, find somewhere else to go. Find another way to support your family. Um, but you can't sell your soul to support your family. Um, so if a company demands that you declare yourself for some, to support something immoral, uh, that you personally have to approve of it and promote it, and uh, uh, thereby, you know, uh, reject your faith, reject our Lord, reject the church. You, they give you no choice. You just have to tell them, no, I will not do this. And if they fire you, they fire you. I would suggest anybody in a position like that right now, that he start laying, making plans, serious plans for alternatives and get out of there, escape from there as well as you can. Yeah. Quickly as you can. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> uh, it's it's difficult in the world today, but this is what needs to be done, you know. And uh, 
I would suggest also uh, the necessity not just of, of leaving and shaking the dust off your feet. That's just the beginning. Uh, I would suggest that you have the intention to use all the powers you have and with every fiber in your being. Now, then not only free yourself from the clutches of those, but do everything in your power to resist them and to oppose them. Um, I think we're in this position, uh, actually, because of the failure to do just that. We've had in, in libraries around the, around the country <clears throat> these uh, transvestite story hours where children are gathered and, um, uh, what do they call Trans people are dressed up almost diabolically and reading stories and promoting uh, their transvestite anti-gospel, uh, transgender anti-gospel to the children. And um, I don't think that there was, well, at least I'm not aware of, any real serious response to that, except complaints, maybe some complaints, that's about it. But um, beyond that, no, and I, I do believe that uh, that that passivity has uh, energized these uh, people who promote these perversions. Um, and so it continues to this day, right? The passivity uh, of the, I don't know, I've been calling conservatives as much, because conservatives are always to preserve the status quo, and we don't want to preserve the status quo. I'd, I'd say the passivity of those who have faith, hope, and love for our Lord um, has emboldened uh, the, the powers of, of perversion in the world today. And um, that there's going to have to be from God the grace is necessary to, uh, for some souls at least, to rise up and say, no, no, we will not, like the Maccabees of old, right? Uh, so, in any case, um, Tom, we, we have to stand up. You know, it's, it's the month of our Lord's Sacred Heart. And it's a matter of devotion and fidelity to Him, right? Um, we have to rally around that cause. I mean, what did, what did uh, our, our Lord tell the King of France to consecrate France to His Sacred Heart and to include the Sacred Heart in the, as the emblem on the French flag, you know? to make that very clear where your allegiance lies. And uh, we have to begin making that very clear. And so uh, this being the month of the, of the Sacred Heart, this is an excellent time for us to declare where our allegiance is. Absolutely. It's with our Lord. Yeah. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Well, certainly thanks for everything that you do. God bless you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.